0: Hi, Proof listeners. Hannah Crowley here. So I have some weird eating habits. I consider myself a VEP. That's a vegetarian, except for pepperoni pizza. I really don't eat meat. I don't love the texture of it. And I also, at times, can't really stop thinking about the animal, what they go through. But pepperoni pizza is just so delicious. I can't help it, so, which it just feels arbitrary. But you know, everybody, everybody draws that line in their head somewhere. I spoke with science writer and reporter Sarah Vitek about this arbitrary line we all draw about what we will and will not eat.
1: Yeah, so I was thinking about it a lot, Hannah, and people certainly have their own systems for like which animals they'll eat and which animals they won't eat. Like, I know someone who goes by the perceived IQ of an animal, and it seems like you're kind of going sort of with how much you can tell it's an animal, which I think is really funny. (laughs) It's fun. Yeah, I go like
0: I think about IQ, too. But then if it's really delicious, you know, and it's shaped so far away from what the actual animal is, like pulverized into oblivion, like pepperonis on pizza. Yeah, I I still want to eat it.
1: So to some degree, it is arbitrary. But I think for most people, they draw the line based on which animals they think can feel pain or which animals they think have feelings at all, which we sort of commonly summarize as sentience. And it's not just about whether we eat them or not that our understanding of their sentience has a bearing on, but it also impacts how we treat them. And what's super interesting to me about all of this is that as a society, we have kind of drawn this line that we all agree upon as a group And that line of whether or not we ascribe sentience to creatures is invertebrates, basically. So, it's been a while since my high school
0: biology class. What does invertebrates mean again?
1: Invertebrates are basically anything without a backbone. So, we've all just decided, collectively, that any animal that doesn't have a backbone is not sentient and it doesn't feel pain. And to me, this did seem really arbitrary, but it's baked into our lives. You can see it clearly so many different ways in the kitchen. For example, with most mammals, their meat is called a different thing from the animal. And if you think about invertebrates, like, most animals that you eat, they have the same name. So you think of, like, clams are just clams, shrimps just shrimp, mussels are just mussels. I mean, there's, like, a few exceptions, like, ascargo or, like, you know, calamari, but those are just, like, their name in different languages.
0: Oh, that's so interesting. So it's like we, we almost need to be more removed from the cows and the pigs than we do from these invertebrates.
1: Yeah, we need this, like, cognitive dissonance so that we feel okay eating the animal. But it's not just in the kitchen that we feel this way. This social agreement, it runs all through society. So I used to be a biology researcher, and, you know, it comes up a lot in the lab as well. The way that we restrict and regulate the use of research animals, plus it's in our animal welfare laws. And in particular, there's this one group of animals that I think sits right directly on this line. It's crustaceans. And I think as a home cook, this is intrinsically obvious. It's really where the rubber meets the road in your home kitchen. You know, this is the only animal that you bring home still alive. And it still sort of looks like an animal and behaves like an animal. It can move around. It responds to things. So for this story, I decided to focus on one invertebrate in particular, and I chose the lobster. If you're cooking at home, that's the moment when you really have to engage with that like specific line that we've all agreed to. And I really wanted to know, how did we draw this line? When did we all agree to this? And based on what? My quest to answer these questions started out as a very 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 different question that I had encountered in my reporting. What's that? Can you get lobsters high using marijuana?
0: From America's Test Kitchen, I'm Hannah Crowley, and the proof is in the puff.
2: The world of food is vast. That's exactly why Augusta Escoffier School of Culinary Arts offers a wide range of programs. Take a class in plant-based culinary arts or hospitality and restaurant operations management and so much more. With campuses in Boulder, Colorado and Austin, Texas, Escoffier focuses on food innovation and technique development. And if being on campus isn't the right fit for you, Escoffier offers 100% professional online diplomas and degrees with real-world externships. Graduates can enter their careers with practical skills and knowledge, setting the stage for career success. If you want more information, visit escoffier.edu to learn more. That's E-S-C-O-F-F-I-E-R dot E-D-U.
1: Our story begins with Charlotte Gill, the owner of Charlotte's legendary lobster pound
3: in Southwest Harbor, Maine. So it's lobster, it's not lobster. It's ca, not car. That's how you speak with a New England accent.
1: From the moment I got there, it was immediately obvious to me that Charlotte is a character. She was dressed from head to toe in bright yellow, and she drives around a big red Hummer whose rear view mirrors have these fake lobster claws attached, which makes it look like a giant lobster. Her legendary lobster pound reflects her quirky personality.
3: She gave me a tour of the roadside takeout spot. I was mentioning earlier a very serious equestrian facility.
1: It's a line of stick horses she affectionately calls Stick Horse Stables. It's placed right between the Field of Dreams with big long games and Squirt Gun Alley. In the back, there are goats. They have little toy boats in the lobster tanks for them to play with or get out their aggression, a detail which makes it clear that Charlotte also really cares
3: about the lobsters. And we have written over there the Zombie Lobster Lounge and Dinner Theater. That's from the time they got
1: lobster costumes for everyone, including the goats, and the staff learned and performed the thriller dance, which somehow transitioned into the final scene of dirty dancing, all in lobster outfits. Charlotte started the restaurant 10 years ago,
3: and everything at the restaurant is designed with a goal in mind. The whole idea is to get people to come where they have a place where they can just be, where they can come and create memories and have real conversations and get off their telephones.
1: But over the years of running the lobster pound, a nagging feeling grew in Charlotte.
3: It was all kind of happening at the expense of the lobster.
1: As you know, Hannah, putting lobsters directly into boiling water alive is one of the most common methods of cooking them. Oh, it's it's awful when they fight you. And you want them to fight you because it says they're
0: fresh,
3: right? It's brutal. And always the belief had been that the lobsters don't suffer. You know, you can throw them into the pot and that's it. But Charlotte wasn't buying it. It's just not true. I've seen it thousands and thousands and thousands of times. It's just absolutely not true. For years, this creeping feeling grew.
1: It was keeping her up at night, trying to think of how she might run a lobster pound without causing so much suffering.
3: And so I really started to look at what could we do for the lobster? How could we make this better?
1: It turns out, Charlotte isn't alone in feeling concerned about putting live lobsters in boiling water. The process of boiling them alive is specifically banned in New Zealand, Switzerland, and Italy, and the UK is currently considering legislation that would extend protections to lobsters and other crustaceans. And really, I think this is something that comes up for anyone who's cooking a lobster. It's certainly something that America's Test Kitchen has addressed before. Actually, Hannah, someone on your team ran different tests of methods of killing and cooking lobsters at home, didn't they?
0: Yeah, Andrea Geary, who's on Cooks Illustrated, she, for her lobster roll recipe, when she was developing it, she was, like, standing them on their heads, cooling them down in the refrigerator, trying all different things to, you know, make a, a little better.
1: Yeah. Do you know what she decided was the best? I think she does recommend chilling them briefly. To Charlotte, back at the legendary lobster pound, all these options sounded pretty bad. She was still losing sleep over building a utopia on unavenged lobster tears and wanting a better way.
3: I was just really kind of talking to the universe that night, like, hey, you know, can you just show me? There's got to be a better way. I don't want to do this this way anymore. And so I fell asleep, and about three o'clock in the morning, I literally woke up
1: The revelation that came to her was out of the box, to say the least.
3: It's hard to explain when you know something, but you have absolutely no evidential proof of how you know it, but you know. You know it because it's resonating in every single cell in your body. You know it's true, and you know, but you don't know why. And so I knew there was a connection with lobsters and cannabis.
1: Lobster and weed? Would that work? I mean, no one had ever tried it before. Or at least there was nothing published about it. So Charlotte's idea was that getting them high might sedate them enough that they wouldn't feel pain. But at the time, no one really even knew if they would take up cannabis at all. She and the crew did find some old studies that suggested that invertebrates have cannabinoid receptors, which made it look promising, but there really wasn't any way to know, except to try it. So the question became, how could they get the cannabis into the lobster's system? They built a container that they could use to essentially hotbox a lobster. Uh, for the uninitiated, hotboxing is slang for when you smoke marijuana in an enclosed space so that the whole space fills with smoke. <laughs> oh, thank you, Sarah. I did not know that. Yeah. You're welcome, Amanda. I knew <laughs> that. That one was for you specifically. <laughs> and then they chose a lobster for the first trial run. They named him Roscoe. They lit some cannabis that Charlotte had grown and blew it in with an air mattress pump. And in Roscoe went... Lucky boy. So they watched him and they recorded videos and I was able to get a hold of those videos and watch them with (laughs) Hannah. His
0: his eyelids are (laughs) weird.
1: So they're like opening this box that they have him inside of, and there's all of this smoke coming out. Okay, so Roscoe like he
0: does like kind of look stoned to me. I don't know. call me crazy, but his eyes did look a little closed, a little glazed over.
3: And then Post sedated, we took him out. His claws were completely dropped. His tail was dropped. And he was just very, very relaxed, very chilled out.
1: They kept Roscoe for two weeks to see if there were any negative effects. They watched him and recorded video. At first, they put him in the tank all by himself, but later they slowly added more lobsters in with him.
3: He was actually quite social with the other lobsters, which was interesting. Often, if they're in a different environment, they'll go back and they'll try to hide in a corner, something to hide under. But none of that happened. And he was still unbanded. Unbanded. So
1: that's referring to the rubber bands that get put on lobsters' claws. This is done because they can be aggressive, especially when they're stressed out and they'll actually eat each other. Dang.
3: And the interesting thing about it was him being so relaxed actually seemed to cause the other lobsters to relax as well. Not to the point that he was, but it was interesting. Charlotte and the crew
1: felt satisfied that the cannabis had no negative effects on Roscoe.
3: And then for his contributions to lobster science, we ended up setting him loose off of the pier.
1: The lobster pound never ended up selling any lobsters that had been sedated using cannabis, though they started on what they saw as the next major step, which was trying to figure out if eating the hot box lobster would get you high. Did you test like the lobster meat or something?
3: We tested my father. Oh, okay. So my father was the retired Episcopal minister. If you didn't
1: catch that, Charlotte nominated her father, an Episcopal minister, to taste test the cannabis lobster. He seemed like a good candidate because he had never used any
3: form of cannabis in his life. A perfectly clean slate. So we fed him small amounts and then we fed him copious amounts.
0: So, okay, we're
1: testing on an Episcopal minister. So what happened? After each round, they had him take the same drug test that the state of Maine uses. His test never came back positive. I love that he was down for this. Me too. Around then, the whole thing gained some traction with the media.
2: A restaurant in Maine is giving a much different meaning to bake lobster. That
1: restaurant, Charlotte's legendary Lobster Pound, is blowing marijuana smoke on the lobsters before boiling them. And then they got a call from the health department asking them to stop even experimenting with marijuana at the Lobster Pound.
3: Even though cannabis is legal in the state of Maine, on a federal level, it's illegal. And so restaurants all have to follow the guidelines placed by the federal government.
1: The FDA has a list called Generally Recognized as Safe Substances list. Ironically, the acronym is GRASS. Charlotte took a look and discovered that valerian root was on the list. Valerian root is often referred to as nature's valium. She decided to give it a go and found that it worked almost as well. Plus, the lobsters seemed to really like the taste. They moved to using valerian root and have been sedating all the lobsters they sell at the pound. A big marquee sign out in front of the restaurant reads, Raise the vibration with crustacean sedation.
0: (laughs) That's great. What a cool solution. So have a bunch of other lobster places
1: started doing this? Mm, No, not really. Why not? Well, let me let Maisie Tomlinson answer that. She is the co-director and co-founder of a group called Crustacean Compassion based in the UK.
4: As far as... I'm aware the evidence that this actually effectively stuns the animal is just not there.
1: Maisie started Crustacean Compassion after she read a story in a local newspaper in London about a grocery store that was selling crabs shrink-wrapped on polystyrene boards while they were still alive. She realized that legally nothing could be done because crustaceans weren't under the purview of the RSPCA or the Royal Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals, which is a British animal welfare group. I asked Maisie about crustacean compassion's stance on the best way to kill
4: lobsters. We believe that the electrical stunning of decoupole crustaceans is currently the most humane method out there.
1: Electrical stunning sounds pretty intense, though. It really does. I'll let Maisie explain what exactly electrical stunning is in a second, but electrical stunning or splitting, another method, are the top recommendations of the Humane Society, the RSPCA, and a scientific review article that was published in April of this year. And crustacean compassion also had a scientist do their own independent review, and they came to the same conclusion.
4: We don't endorse any particular machine, but people often talk about a machine called the Stun.
2: The Electro Stunner is the first and only machine specially designed for the swift and compassionate killing of crabs, lobsters and other shellfish for the table.
4: And it's actually used by top restaurants like um, Le Manoir by Raymond Blanc, who's a very famous British-French chef, Giorgio Locatelli and Nigel Bloxham at the Crab House Cafe in Dorset.
1: So what does this stun look like? Well, it kind of looks like a panini press. You put the lobster in, you close the lid, you turn a dial, and according to the manufacturer, it delivers an electric shock that renders the animal dead in one second. Maisie actually recommends that a lobster still be split with a knife after stunning. And to be clear, this isn't something you would do at home.
4: We do not recommend that people attempt to kill these animals at home. You wouldn't expect to buy a chicken or a rabbit from the butcher, take it home, and then kill it yourself. This should really only be done by trained and competent professionals.
1: What's funny is that I had talked to Charlotte and she had talked about electrical stunning as well. So she knew someone who had used them in these like large lobster processing plants and she had polar opposite views.
3: The stunning is basically, it's a huge electric grid. And what happens is it basically it, it melts the lobster. So it melts their antennas, it melts their eyeballs, it melts some of their, you know, claws and limbs. It doesn't kill them. And then they're disassembled.
1: Okay, so the argument for electrical stunning is that it's fast and effective. The argument for cannabis is that it spares them more pain. But the question for me is, are either of these methods actually helping the lobster feel less pain? Like, are the lobsters aware of what's being done to them? And if so, what can we do about it? To find out, I talked to some scientists.
0: When we return, Sarah attempts to get some answers.
2: Who doesn't like trying new wines? Naked Wines makes it super easy to do just that. Not only do they deliver wine directly to your front door, they also fund some of the world's most experienced, independent winemakers to produce their passion projects. When you join their 300,000 member angel community, you're helping to fund hundreds of exclusive wines you can't find anywhere else. Each wine is the culmination of the passion and artistry of an experienced Vintner. So, join the community and get your Angel Wings. Get started today and save 100 bucks off your first order of $140. A six-bottle case starts at just $39.99. Visit nakedwines.com slash holidayproof21 and have yourself a glass of your own. Naked Wines, from the winemaker to your door. You deserve a kitchen that works for you. Kohler sinks come in varying depths and basins so that you get your perfect fit. Their workstation sinks provide accessories to support all of your washing, rinsing, and storage needs. All of Kohler sinks and faucets are designed to make your kitchen look its best while still getting your cooking goals accomplished. And what a relief that is, especially during the holidays. Visit Kohler.com to learn more.
1: And now, back to our story. So before the break, we talked about how hotboxing and electrically stunning are two methods of killing our invertebrate friend, the lobster, that might be a little faster. But what we don't know about these methods yet are whether or not they actually help the lobster feel less pain. I wanted to figure that out, so I began by turning to this scientist.
5: Around 2018, sometime in the fall, I believe, uh, there was this uh, story circulating on the internet, and you know, my lab got a hold of it, and the, the story made some claims you know, um, that we thought we could test.
1: That is Dr. Arnold Gutierrez, who's a postdoc at UC San Diego. I wanted to talk to Dr. Gutierrez because he conducted a scientific experiment to test the cannabis method. He was probably one of the most careful scientists I've ever interviewed. He was willing to tell me exactly what they did and exactly what they found, but he wasn't going to speculate about anything beyond that. This is actually a very important skill for a scientist to have and something that I really respect. When I asked him what his reaction to Charlotte's method of getting the lobsters high was, this is what he said.
5: As a scientist, uh, this sparked all kinds of curiosity in us. And so, you know, we we had the equipment, we had the means to do so, so we decided to to move forward and, and test some of these assertions.
1: So, primarily, he wanted to look at three things. One, if lobsters could, in fact, take up THC by gill respiration. THC is the main psychoactive chemical in cannabis. Two, whether it would get into the lobster's muscle and other tissues. And most importantly for our story, three, if it would change the lobster's behavior In particular, how they react to what Gutierrez would call a noxious stimuli, which in this case was hot water. And what they found was that, yes, the lobsters do take up the THC, it does end up in their tissues with an especially high concentration in the gills, and the amount that ends up in the tissue is time-dependent, so the longer the lobster is exposed, the more THC you find in the tissue. And lastly, when they tested if the THC changed the lobster's response to hot water.
5: I mean, I would say it really had minimal, if any, effects.
1: Womp womp. Well, yes and no, because the procedure that Dr. Gutierrez did was pretty different from what they were doing at the lobster pound. So the results of this study might be totally different if you followed Charlotte's exact protocol. And Dr. Gutierrez agrees with that.
5: Follow-up studies would really be required to see uh, whether different exposure durations or, you you know, different temperatures might actually do something else.
1: So where does that leave us then? Ultimately, I would say that everyone is in agreement that lobsters can be hotboxed, which is a brand new finding and a pretty cool one at that. But the jury is still out on what that means for their ability to react to hot water. You mean if it makes the hot water less painful for them? So this is a really subtle, but very important point. We haven't really gotten into the realm of pain yet. Because what Dr. Gutierrez's experiment was designed to test for is something called nociception.
5: This is a process by which animals detect potentially harmful stimuli in the environment. And, you know, the the, the way we measure that is by their reaction.
1: But nociception isn't pain. No susception is just measuring a response. It doesn't tell us anything about if the subject feels pain at all. So, for example, the lobsters could just have a reflex response to the hot water without actually feeling anything. In that case, they would exhibit no susception, but they wouldn't be feeling the pain. Or, on the flip side, Charlotte's sedated lobsters could be so sedated that they feel the pain of boiling water, but the sedation was making their ability to move and respond sluggish or non-existent. So they could be not exhibiting nociception, but still feeling pain. It's an important distinction because whether we think they feel pain or not determines whether society thinks we should give them a humane death. And it's also a key element of whether we think they're sentient. So I began to wonder, how do you disentangle nociception from pain? Can you measure how much pain an animal is feeling?
6: That is a a very, very difficult question. One that could be very, very annoying. I've spent at least 10, 15 years running experiments.
1: That is Dr. Robert Elwood. He's a retired emeritus professor of animal behavior at the Queen's University in Belfast, Ireland. Primarily, his work has been in hermit crabs. Hermit crabs make very interesting subjects because they evaluate shells, and scientists use this behavior to tease apart how they gather information and make decisions. As it turns out, this is also a very helpful trait for trying to design experiments and tease apart feeling pain and nociception. At first, Dr. Elwood wasn't thinking about that, though. He was just investigating how hermit crabs make decisions. And that was a great line of research. It was going well, he was doing some of his best work, until...
6: I happened to bump into a very well known seafood chef, very well known in the UK anyway, uh, called Rick Stein. And uh, there he was in, in my restaurant, my local pub restaurant, in a small village in Northern Ireland. So I just chatted to him briefly and I said, We've got a mutual interest in crustacea. I study their behaviour and you cook them. And his response was, do they feel pain? In my heart, I thought that that is that's a really stupid question. Because I know from a scientist's point of view, is you cannot get a clear answer, you can't get a yes or no answer. Uh, there's no way of measuring pain in animals. You can measure temperature, you can measure hormone levels. But with pain, you're always looking at proxies. There's, there's no painometer.
1: He kept thinking about the question even after that.
6: The question niggled. It niggled me.
1: He would think about the question on his commute to and from work. The general consensus at the time was that invertebrates didn't feel pain, that they would respond to noxious stimuli, but that this was just a reflex. But still, he couldn't quite work out a way to do an experiment that would help him differentiate between reflex and pain.
6: Until just... One day, just sitting in a a conference and listening to a talk, uh, the penny dropped. The lecture was actually in German, which I don't speak. And so that's probably why I was thinking about my own work. You know, I wasn't really following the lecture.
1: The idea was based on the fact that for a hermit crab, their shell is the most important thing in their life. They evaluate them and they fight for them. They apparently have very strong preferences for certain kinds of shells. So, what Dr. Elwood did was he drilled a hole in some of the shells and put in wires so he could give the hermit crabs a little shock through the shell. And at low voltages, the crabs would do a little jolting behavior, something that looks like a reflex. But when the voltages got high enough, the crab would leave the shell.
6: And when it gets out of the shell, it's given up the most valuable thing in its life. And we, we noticed that sometimes they get out of the shell and they stay near the shell. Sometimes they put their claws into the shell and fit around sort of, to try and figure out what's going on. But some crabs just scurried away.
1: This was particularly convincing because if the crabs were just exhibiting a reflex, they would probably just jolt every time a shock was administered and then carry on with their day. But the fact that they left their shells after a big shock suggests that they might have experienced pain, enough to incentivize them to leave. But the next part was even more convincing. The crabs seemed to change their response based on the quality of the shell. If they got a very low-voltage shock in the type of shell that they didn't like as much, they would jump out right away. Meanwhile, they were willing to endure stronger shocks for the types of shells that they really liked.
6: And that shows that there is a trade-off, it's a decision. They're taking into account other features in their response. So getting out of the shell was not a reflex.
1: And what was even, even more convincing than that was that the shock seemed to have a long-term effect, which you would expect pain to have.
6: Those that are being shot showed a really high motivation to get that new shell. They move very quickly towards it. They gave it a very brief investigation before jumping into it. And uh, that would happen even if we offered them the shell 24 hours later.
1: So, simply put, it would seem that they're remembering the pain and factoring that into their choices, even up to 24 hours later. It's hard to imagine a scenario where that long-term of a memory is caused by a reflex. Wow, that is so Interesting.
0: So these these little creatures love their shells so much, and they're just more emotional about them when they have to leave them. They really try to hold on, but when the pain gets too much, they have to go. And that shows us that we
1: they feel pain, probably. Right. Probably. That was just one experiment in a whole bunch of experiments that they did to get at this question. Dr. Elwood also mentioned to me a study that had been done by another group on crayfish, where after they had received a shock, they tend to become very risk-averse. So they'll hide in dark areas, and they exhibit anxiety. This made me think of Roscoe, and how Charlotte mentioned that he became more social and less stressed. But ultimately, this was the takeaway from Dr. Elwood.
6: I can categorically say now that these animals will respond to nocturne. stimuli sometimes by reflex and other times by things that are much longer term and cannot possibly be a reflex. And this demonstrates that there is central processing. Now, does that mean that they experience pain? Um, No. (laughs) Uh, Unfortunately, it doesn't. What it does, it makes it possible that they experience pain. I've shown that it's a possibility. And that's where we are in reality with all animals.
1: So, ultimately, we can't say whether or not they feel pain, and we may never be able to say for certain. But if we can't say for certain whether or not they feel pain or a whole host of other feelings, then we can't really categorize them as sentient or not sentient. Then the question really becomes, how do we treat them in the meantime with information that we do have? And yet again, I was in luck, because as it turns out, I got to speak to this man.
7: Jonathan Birch, I'm an associate professor of philosophy at the London School of Economics and principal investigator on the Foundations of Animal Sentience project.
1: I like to think of Dr. Birch as a lobster sentience philosopher. Animal sentience is important to our question with the lobsters because, as we noted at the beginning, whether or not we end up considering more humane ways of treating animals or granting rights to them depends a lot on whether or not we see them as sentient beings. This is how Dr. Birch defines sentience.
7: It's basically the capacity to have feelings, where feelings can be pain, pleasure, hunger, thirst, warmth, comfort, discomfort anxiety, joy, and there could be feelings in other animals that we don't have words for.
1: He pointed out to me that in the EU and the UK, cephalopod mollusks, aka octopus, squid, cuttlefish, etc., are protected by law in a scientific context. So octopuses were protected first, and then it was expanded to all cephalopods in 2010.
7: So since 2010, there's been this glaring inconsistency in the law where you know, scientists are convinced enough that octopuses are sentient to think it's a good idea to protect them in labs. But in, in the animal welfare laws for the rest of society, they're not covered at all.
1: Dr. Birch has also narrowed in on this crustacean ethical gray area. He points out that there's a group that thinks that crustaceans are sentient, and then another group that thinks that they aren't. But then, as he points out in an interview with Serious Science...
7: And then there's a a third group still who say, well, maybe we can never know. Maybe we can never know the answers to these questions about which animals have conscious experiences and which don't.
1: But, he says,
7: It's very important that we try and find ways of answering these questions because really a lot hangs on it.
1: So what Dr. Berkshire's work has really focused on is thinking about how we think about these things when we don't have all the answers. Dr. Birch has borrowed an idea called the precautionary principle.
7: It's just this principle that when the science is uncertain about something, but there's a major risk of harm, you should err on the side of caution, and you should be willing to take proportionate measures to mitigate that risk, even if the science is still subject to ongoing disagreement and dispute.
1: Like, in the case of the hermit crab shell-shock experiment, he would agree that it's not conclusive evidence that the hermit crabs are sentient or that they're feeling pain, but the results indicate that they might. So the precautionary principle would say, err on the side of caution, and assume that the hermit crabs do experience pain. And that's what leads them to jet out of their shells and find a new one so quickly.
7: I think it's also very useful for thinking about sentience. If you think about live boiling, for example, of of animals, you don't want to be waiting for science to be absolutely, completely agreed on the question of sentience before taking proportionate measures to regulate that.
1: It's a balancing act, though, between trying to err on the side of caution, but also trying not to err on that side so much that you actually do more harm.
0: Yeah, I mean, if the culinary world were to have to apply this precautionary principle to lobsters, supermarkets would have to all stock the crust stun machine, and I can imagine that would add up.
1: Yeah, exactly. So ultimately, Dr. Birch says the benefit of the precautionary principle is that it gets us talking.
7: I think the main thing is that we, we have this discussion. You know, we don't just think that animal sentience is something on which scientific evidence can never bear. There is actually clear evidence that does bear on the question. It doesn't conclusively resolve it, but it is relevant. And moreover, I think it's enough for us to actually change the law and change the way we think about invertebrates.
1: So, Hannah, I think where we're at at the end of the day is that, as with any question that can't be definitively answered, we all have to sort of look at what we know, and just sort of make a judgment call for ourselves. Does any of this change the way you think about eating lobsters? Will it change how you act in the future at all? I think I will still eat them. Maybe
0: if I cook them at home, I'll have to, you know, do the stab. I just, if that's
1: the best way to do it, I guess so. What about you? Uh, you know, Hannah, as it turns out, I don't even eat lobster.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Are you kidding me? We went through this whole thing and you don't even eat lobster?
1: Yeah, I know, I know, I know. I just don't really like the taste. (laughs) But I I think this did open the door for me to think more actively about a lot of the other things that I just take for granted as not sentient. Like plants, for example. I mean, we all just assume that plants aren't sentient, but I used to work in a plant research lab. What we were doing was— spraying stress hormones onto the plants and trying to find a way to, yeah, basically make them stressed out. So, you know, if plants have a whole molecular system to be stressed, like, I don't know. How, how would that not qualify as sentience? I guess it It just makes me want to think a little bit more about, like, why I don't believe an organism feels pain or, or which organisms I think do feel pain. No matter what the conclusion you come to with this information though, I think we can all agree that the decision carries some weight. There was a quote from Dostoevsky that Charlotte read to me back the legendary lobster pound. And I think it really kind of distills the weight of this question beautifully.
3: Imagine that you're creating a fabric of human destiny with the object of making men happy in the end, giving them peace and rest at last. Imagine that you're doing this but that it is essential and inevitable to torture to death only one tiny creature. In order to found that edifice on its unavenged tears, would you consent to be the architect on those conditions? Tell me and tell the truth.
0: Thanks to Sarah Vitak for bringing us this story. If you like Proof, be sure to subscribe wherever you listen, so you'll get new episodes as soon as they drop. And while you're there, why not leave us a rating or write us a review? It really helps other people find the show. This episode of Proof is hosted by me, Hannah Crowley, and the podcast is made by the following cast of characters. I'm Yumi Araki, the managing producer. I'm executive producer, Caitlin Kelleher. I'm senior producer, Caroline Rickert.
7: I'm Terrence Johnson, and I'm the associate producer.
3: I'm Bridget Lancaster, creator and the founding host and producer.
0: Scoring, sound design, and mixing by...
7: Matt Poynton.
0: And... Anya Gjeshik Of Ultraviolet Audio. Brian Campbell of Signal Sounds composed our theme music. Additional music by Kyle Forrester and Jordan Pearson. Ken Margolis. Is our director of post-production, and our line producer is... Diane Knox. Fact-checking and additional research by... Angela Yang. Special thanks to Tim and Laura Corbett, Rubez Chong, Do Young Lee, and Elena Pegan for helping us with this story.
5: Jack Bishop
0: is the Chief Creative Officer of America's Test Kitchen and
5: David Nussbaum
0: is America's Test Kitchen's CEO. Thanks to our sponsors for this season: Kohler, Naked Wines, Auguste Escoffier School of Culinary Arts, and Green Pan Cookware. Proof is a production of America's Test Kitchen.